What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to my social life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Before we get into today's conversation with Starbucks co-founder Zeb Siegel, there's a couple things that we need to go over first. Number one, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review. The more positive ratings and reviews we get, the more it helps new people find the show. And it really helps to grow the community that we're developing here. And if you're one of the people that have recently found the podcast, welcome. I'm very excited to have you here. Make sure you subscribe and stay tuned for future episodes. I put out brand new interviews every single Monday and brand new takeaways episodes is an audio exclusive where I sit down and break down the most recent podcast episode of the week every single Thursday. Last but not least, if you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to share it to your Instagram story, tag myself at the Jacob Kelly, and I'll feature you on my account and send you a message as well. And now without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Zev Siegel. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to my social life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. And today's guest requires no introduction. He's the co-founder of Starbucks, Mr. Startup himself, Zev Siegel. Zev, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, Jacob. I'm excited to have you here. So where I want to start today, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. What were you like as a child? The only thing I could find, I have one word written down here, and it is hyperactive, but that is all I have. So what were you like growing up? Hyperactive. Uh, the, uh, the truth is that I was a real random child, a random thinker, uh, very energetic, uh, I think a real challenge to my wonderful parents. Uh, and... Uh, I got the the care that I needed and the attention that I needed. I have a brother and a sister also who were raised equally thoughtfully. Uh, my mother became an educator. My father was a concert violinist, the ch- um, a concert master of the Seattle Symphony. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you say that your parents, through their career paths, kind of helped ground you with the diversity of people. Is that true? Boy, is that true, yeah. It's taken me a long time to understand this, that the kind of people that came to dinner at our house weren't exactly the kind of people that were coming to dinner at everybody's house. Um, There were a lot of musicians. Uh, There were uh, important educators, some of them with national reputations. Um, You know, Leonard Bernstein was in our living room one evening. What can I say? Wow. For for the people that don't know, can you explain who that is? Oh, Leonard Bernstein is a... famous uh, conductor and uh, composer. Uh, He did, for instance, the music for West Side Story and was a a classical music conductor for many years. Wow. And I'm curious about some of your other influences growing up. A couple key people that I have written down here is your uncle who owned his own meat processing company and family friends that worked on Madison Avenue in advertising. Can you kind of explain the impact that those people had on you growing up? Yeah, you know, I do a lot of mentoring and coaching uh, uh, with startups. And clearly the reason that I do that doesn't take any analysis is that people really helped me along the way. Um, There was my uncle uh, who lived in Detroit where my mother and father were from. And um, he took an interest in me, he and his wife. Uh, He is now long gone, Um, uh, she is still alive. Um, my uncle was a, a businessman of the the real earthy variety. He uh, he and his family had a meat packing plant in uh, Michigan, and he would take me when we were visiting in Detroit, which was every year. 
he would uh, sometime during the visit take me to work. And you know, when you go to someone's business, especially if it's a you know, like a small manufacturing company, if you're if you have eyes, ears, you us most a lot of information. And I picked up a tremendous amount of information that I didn't know I was picking up. But later on in my life, I was able to make judgments and draw on those experiences. And this continued right up to the end of his life when he was 92. Uh, He was very uh, much uh, important to me. And uh, there was a couple, uh, when we lived in New York City from uh, 1947 to 1957, um, among my parents' many interesting friends um, uh, were the Wilsons. And they were both on Madison Avenue in the classic uh, martini at lunch, big time client sort of vision, a version of uh, Madison Avenue. Um, And they were fascinating to me. They um, didn't have kids, so they took an interest in their friends' kids, and that included me. Um, And uh, we've been friends for a long, long time. Um, And we would talk business and, uh, you know, philosophy and many other things. But uh, again, I, this was you know, osmosing, you know, you pick up all the stuff that you don't think is very important at the time, but later in life, especially if you go into business, you start drawing on this trove of information. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned how like you might, like you pick it up through osmosis and you might not be using it right away. And for you specifically, you, you, when you graduated college, you ended up not going into business right away, right? Like you were oh, a no, public teacher for a few years. I didn't intend to go into business. I became a teacher. Uh, in the Seattle Public Schools, I taught history and social studies to adolescents, 13, 14 year old kids. I loved it. But after three years, I was done um, and um, burned out. And um, I was looking for something else to take its place. And so when you reflect on those three years, I'm curious as to how you look back on it. Because I feel like, especially in today's entrepreneurship culture, a lot of people feel like they need to find a business and make it big as soon as fast as possible. And anything that's not building a business is almost deemed as a waste of time. So how do you look back on those three years prior to starting your business? <laughs> yeah. Um, the, um, well, I, I really enjoyed teaching. I have a lot of empathy for uh, adolescent kids, maybe because uh, my adolescence was a pretty big challenge. Um, they're fascinating. You know, in the same classroom, you know, like in a seventh or eighth grade classroom, you have kids who, uh, haven't had their growth spurt yet, and you have kids who could play uh, football, you know, with the New York Jets, and um, it's it's amazing, and they're you know they're finding their way, and but they are still very open and uh, full of energy and ideas. I loved it. I thought they they were fascinating. And I'm curious as to how you ended up meeting the co-founders of Starbucks, because I know you ended up, the three of you ended up meeting to discuss different business ideas. But prior to that, is it true that you met Jerry on a cross-country road trip where you would have posted that you're traveling from Seattle to New York and were looking to take passengers with you? <laughs> uh, you know, this whole subject of how the three of us met is kind of interesting. And, and I must say, Jacob, that very few people ask me about it. So I give you an A plus there. Um, let's see. Uh, I there was a Seattle World's Fair in 1962. It was a big hoopla event with um, pavilions from all over the place, all over the world, and that's when the famous Seattle Space Needle was constructed. Uh, I worked at that fair, just you know, uh, two two jobs that were you know not, not important. Um, 
And while I was there, it's Gordon Bowker that I met there. So at the end of the fair, which was early, you know, at the end of November, uh, I put a notice on a, a job board where the employees checked in that I was going to drive to New York. And um, did anybody want to go with me and share the expenses? And Gordon Bowker, another guy who was working at the Seattle World's Fair, uh, contacted me. And we made arrangements uh, to do this together. The, uh, <laughs> it was a pretty funny trip. The car that I had bought for it failed in the first leg. Uh, we were driving, we drove to San Francisco first, um, and <laughs> the car died as we were crossing the Bay Bridge. Literally, it died. The engine just you know, went kaput. Uh, so we bought another car while we were in San Francisco, another inexpensive car that had much more staying power, and we drove that car to New York City and sold it. Um, the, the other partner, uh, Jerry Baldwin was a friend of Gordon's from, uh, university of San Francisco, and they had known each other for several years. And later, many years later, actually, uh, five, six years later, we sort of became friends, the three of us. And at one point we even lived in the same tiny little neighborhood close to each other. And we liked each other. We got along fine. You know, we had. You know, we were at that time, say, 25, 26 years old, and, uh, you know, we were dating and uh, going to parties, and, you know, it was a, a nice relationship. Mm -hmm. And I read this somewhere. I can't remember where. I was just curious if you could confirm it. Did Jerry and Gordon meet when they were in line trying to get dorms for their during college? I think that's a true story, yes. And um, uh, this was, again, at the University of San Francisco. And so talk to me then about that time then where the three of you started meeting together to talk business oh, ideas. That's really, oh, gosh, that's really amazing. And I think this is probably also true of many people who are listening to this podcast that, you know, how you get going with an idea. So during uh, the summer of 1970, only 50 years ago, um, the... The three of us started meeting sort of semi-formally, you know, we'd actually sit down and talk instead of just hanging out together. Um, we started uh, talking about maybe it was time to change our lives. See, I was a teacher, as I mentioned. Uh, Gordon Barker was a journalist and also wrote for magazines. And Jerry Baldwin was working at the Boeing Company in a job he wasn't especially fond of. And, oh, he was also teaching in a broadcasting school, uh, training disc jockeys. And you know, we started thinking, well, maybe we could do something with business. Now, you have to understand the context that in 1970, the whole structure that supports entrepreneurs today did not exist. There were no organizations that were helping people start companies. Uh, the networks of angel investors did not exist. Uh, if you said you were going to start a company, people thought, well, why don't you just go get a job? That's what everybody else does. Um, so the, the three of us, uh, you know, came up with a list of ideas. They're all, in retrospect, uh, not very good ideas for businesses. And then one day, we, when we were meeting at lunch, uh, I can remember exactly where. Uh, it was in a small, inexpensive restaurant owned by uh, a couple from France. And at the end of uh, the, the lunch, we were, you know, chatting away about business ideas. and. The waiter came back to the table and said, would you gentlemen like espresso? And 
we said yes, yes, that we would. And then he went off to get the uh, cups of espresso. Uh, Gordon and Jerry and I looked at each other and said, I think that's a first. I don't think anybody's ever offered me a cup of espresso uh, before in a restaurant in Seattle. And it was, it was probably true. Uh, it was, this is 1970. There weren't any coffee companies in Seattle. People didn't go to coffee bars. Uh, the waiter, you know, came back to the table, put the espresso design on the, in front of us and then left us. And we continued talking and probably within a minute or two, each of us picked up those little, little demitasse cups and took a sip. And I can tell you, it was pretty bad. Uh, I don't think anybody uh, would be served a cup of coffee uh, that poor uh, today. It just wouldn't happen. Um, so we kind of looked at each other and said, you know, this stuff tastes like crankcase oil. Um, why don't, well, gee, should we add coffee to the list of ideas for a business? And we put it on the list and started doing research. In particular, I got real involved in researching it. But your listeners uh, will appreciate this. Research in 1970 was a little different than it is today. I'll take today every time. It was really primitive then. There was no internet. That's the big problem. So information was on paper. And, um, you know, I remember going to the Seattle Public Library to use their enormous library of telephone books from around the country and around the world. Can you imagine that? I was looking at yellow pages to find out where there were coffee companies. Um, that's all I could do. Uh, so, you know, that's how the idea happened over a bad cup of espresso. And before we kind of move further with coffee, you mentioned there that you added you added a coffee company to the list of ideas. I'm curious about what are some of those other ideas you'd brainstormed early on? A couple that I found in my research, which I, again, I use the internet, so it's probably a lot easier for me. Um, but was a couple that I found was writing screenplays for King TV's production company and making pre-recorded classical music broadcasts for radio. Those were two of them. Um, the screenplays ideas, of course, came from Gordon Bowker. The classical music, I, I believe, came from uh, Jerry Baldwin and from me. Uh, Jerry knew about radio. I knew, you know, through my father, something about classical music. Uh, of course, those weren't very good. There were others. I, we, I just don't recall them now. But um, the, you know, there's a funny thing about ideas. Let's, let's, let's just digress for a minute here. There are lots of ideas that are not very good business ideas. And you find that out as you start to research them, especially if you do financial forecasting. And you really find out that, gee, that idea is not going to work. Um, and then there are ideas that are really pretty good ideas, but maybe not for the person who thought of them. Thought, you know, you think of it like in the case of the um, classical music format that we would license to FM radio stations all over the country. Um, we just weren't the people to do that. We didn't have a depth of knowledge or experience that would have made it possible for us to do that. And maybe that's why we lost interest in it. But um, there are ideas that are good ideas, but just not for the person who thought of it. So then with that in mind, why was Starbucks the right idea for you? Did all this research, you're trying to find that when doing your research, you're trying to find those reasons why it's not a good idea and you couldn't find any reasons why it wasn't a good idea. So why was it the right one for you three? Well, Jacob, that's really interesting. Um, a, we were interested in it. That helps a little passion there. Um, in my family, um, my mother and father uh, went 
a little bit of an extra mile, you know, they bought beans and ground them in a coffee grinder that I can still visualize today. Um, and she, uh, my mother always made coffee in a Chemex, which was a, like a piece of a laboratory equipment with a paper filter in it. And um, Chemex are still sold today. They're having a renaissance. Um, nothing really radical about that, but it, it, that wasn't the case in the homes of my friends. Um, and so there was some interest there, but you know, on general level of interest. And then there was no uh, competition looked like it was minimal. I mean, co everybody drank coffee, you know, even in 1970, the coffee they drank was not very good. You know, it's Folgers and Hills Brothers um, and A&P coffee. Uh, these, these are this is low quality coffee. You know, it, it was drunk in, you know, in 12 ounce mugs, uh, but widely enjoyed. So this was a case of a better mousetrap um, to meet a need that was already established. So that, that kind of appealed to us too. Then when we started doing research, everything opened up very gradually. Uh, we realized, oh my gosh, this could really work. Mm -hmm. And another thing about ideas is it's one thing to come up on an idea, but it's another thing to act on it. So how long from coming up with the idea and researching did it take you to actually starting the company? I, th I believe the idea came to us at that lunch in August. And I think by late October, we were totally committed. Now, what were we committed to is a pretty good question, Jacob. Um, what we were committed to was starting a little coffee company in Seattle. We were not committed to world dominance. Even the concept of a unicorn did not exist in 1970. We were local guys with a local idea. Yeah. And you were the, correct me if I'm wrong, you were the first official employee of Starbucks. Right? You, the other two kept their jobs, but you quit and ran, ran it full time. <laughs> Yeah, I was the first employee because I had quit my job. <laughs> so that, that that made it real easy. Uh, the um, but Gordon and Jerry spent a lot of time to uh, developing the company. But um, you know, the process of getting started was what really the big pivot to total commitment came when during my research I found a guy who later became our mentor. That was, the, that was the cement for the idea. That was the Dutchman who taught America how to drink coffee, right? The guy, Alfred Pete, and his name is still widely known because his company survives. It's Pete's Coffee. In uh, 1970, when I figured out that there was such a, a guy in a company, and it was in Berkeley, California, a few blocks from the campus of the UCAL Berkeley, um, Alfred Pete had two stores and a little roasting plant. And he was uh, born in the Netherlands. Uh, there was coffee in his family. I think one of his uncles roasted coffee uh, for a business. Uh, he was one of th thousands and thousands of Dutch young men who were drafted to, <laughs> to work voluntarily. They were you know, prison labor uh, in factories run by German companies during World War II, after the war, soon after the war. Uh, he went to work for a Dutch trading company, which sent him to Java uh, in Indonesia, where he worked for that company in the coffee and tea industry, visiting plant, uh, plantations 
and um, helping with their export activities. Um, he, um, in the early 50s, you know, uh, he emigrated to the United States and landed in San Francisco, where he became a coffee buyer, a green, excuse me, a green coffee broker. And he was just one of the, of a, one member of a team in San Francisco that, uh, it was a company that imported, you know, container loads of coffee uh, for companies that, like Hills Brothers, you know, that bought boatloads of coffee that wasn't very high quality. He did that for several. And then in the early 60s, he started thinking about opening a little high quality coffee company of his own. This was a radical thought at that time. Nobody else was doing it. Um, and uh, he was able by 1965 to start work on it. And I think he opened in 66, around then, uh, in Berkeley at Shattuck and Vine, uh, Shattuck and Vine Streets. Um, and he was an immediate success because right at that time, unbeknownst to Alfred, um, the gourmet revolution was getting going in San Francisco. And Alice Waters opened her famous restaurant uh, very near him. There was a uh, also equally fabulous cheese store, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he was totally uncompromising. He was an old school guy. He bought fabulous coffees, which was hard to do then, and roasted them dark, which was unusual. And if you didn't like it, that was okay with him, but he wasn't going to change. Mm -hmm. And you ended up flying down to meet Mr. Pete, correct? Right around the time when you were doing your research process? Ah, uh, this was 19, the fall of 1970. So I didn't fly. I drove. Uh, I had a conversation. I called him. This is, you know, I did what I would, I advise entrepreneurs still to do. Um, get in touch with the person who you wished would be your mentor because you were pretty sure they know what you want to know and ask them if they'll help you. If they're not a direct competitor, then maybe they will. Uh, so I called the Pete's Coffee Company and asked to speak to uh, Alfred Pete. <laughs> for some reason, he took the phone call and one of the big breaks in my life. And, you know, we, we chatted a little bit. And he said, finally, when he got the gist of what Gordon and Jerry and I were trying to do, uh, he said in his wonderful Dutch accent, well, Zev, you know, if, if you're thinking about starting a coffee company in Seattle, I think you should come down here and I'll show you a few things. So I, I didn't waste any time. I got in the car and drove to San Francisco, you know, 800 miles. And uh, I'm glad I did. <laughs> when, I, when I got there, uh, I went directly to uh, the more famous store. He had a store in Palo Alto, but the famous store was the one in, uh, uh, in Berkeley. So I went there. It was pretty big, you know, 1,800 square feet. That's a pretty big retail store. And I walked in there on a Saturday. There must, I, I, probably there were eight clerks behind the counter in a coffee bean store um, and maybe 15 people waiting in the, the, you know, the open space in the store. And there were probably half a dozen men and women outside sitting on the um, newspaper boxes that, um, having coffee, treating the sidewalk there in Berkeley like a, like a cafe. It was hilarious. Uh, and the aroma, oh man, the aroma just would knock you down. Uh, he also sold a fabulous collection of teas. He had always had a passion for tea and um, lots of different brewing equipment. 
So I walked, when I walked in that door, my brain exploded. And I, I was wishing at that moment that Jerry and Gordon were with me because it was clear to me that this idea that we had had about starting a coffee roasting and retailing company in Seattle was going to work. At this time, there were uh, uh, in New York, there were a couple of coffee bean stores in the city in San Francisco. There were a couple, but they were nothing in quality compared to Alfred Pete's store. The quality of his uh, coffee and tea was unparalleled. And then on that first initial trip down there, how long did you spend with Alfred? Were you there for just a day? Was it a week long thing? Like how long were you there? It was uh, half a day. I hung out at a store. After a while, he said, let's go over to my roasting plant, which wasn't very far away. And we sat over there for a while. Uh, it was the first, uh, no, it was the second roasting plant that had ever been in my life, but it was the most interesting one. It was small, compact, nothing, nothing fancy. And we just talked. And then the big, big moment came around five o'clock. Uh, and he said, well, you know, Zeb, it's getting, uh, what, getting late. What, why don't we go have a glass of wine and something to eat? Now, I want your listeners to envision this. You're a young guy with an, I, you know, I was 26 years old. You have this idea. You're talking to God, you know, the, the, the man who knows more about gourmet coffee than anybody in the world at that point. And he's just invited you to have a drink. You know, you pray that things like that will happen to you in life. And it, it did happen to me. And I, I just can't believe my luck. I just, it, it was just amazing. So we went, you know, got in the car and drove a mile and to one of those nice, indoor outdoor cafes in Berkeley. And uh, we had wine and some hors d'oeuvres. And by the end of our time together, he looked at me and he said, if you and your partners uh, would like to have a mentor, I would be willing to coach you. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And he did it free of charge as well, right? Uh, He wasn't interested in having any part of our company or charging us anything. Um, You know, he, he, he was having some success. He didn't have kids. We became his kids for a few years. It's amazing. And then Pete's Coffee has been linked to Starbucks at various times throughout the last 50 years. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but Starbucks owned Pete's for a little while. And then yeah. Gordon Bowker served on their board of directors as well, right? Yeah, you've done your homework, uh, Jake. Um, the, um, uh, I hope your listeners appreciate how much homework you, you have done. Uh, this is quite impressive to me. Uh, so, um, okay, a brief history of the relationship between Pete's Coffee and Starbucks Coffee. People on the West Coast, your listeners on the West Coast will appreciate this. Um, Alfred Pete had his company. He owned it uh, up until, uh, I'm going to see, up until when? Sometime in the early 90s, he sold it to another guy in San Francisco who enlarged it slightly. And then, no, that would have been in the early 80s, sorry. Um, and then about that time, um, Jerry Baldwin, who was, um, uh, uh, president of uh, Starbucks in Seattle, um, got real interested in Pete's coffee and started, uh, developing a relationship with the guy who had purchased it from Alfred. His name is Sal, Sal Bonavita. And, um, eventually Jerry persuaded the owner of Pete's now, you know, four or five stores um, to sell. And uh, Starbucks acquired Pete's and they, the two companies were completely separate, but they were owned, had the same ownership. 
and um, then you know later we will get into this uh, um, the companies became totally separate with different ownership mm-hmm. that's the brief history of the relationship mm-hmm. and now how did you stay in touch with Mr. Pile? How long did he help you in the beginning of the company? My my memory is two or three years. Um, yes, and he came to Seattle, especially in the first year, a couple of times um, to see what we were doing. He helped us set up our first roasting plant, which was quite small, separate from the store. Now, I want to help your readers and your readers, your listeners understand something. Uh, at that time, when Starbucks was first started. And throughout its first decade, throughout the 1970s, Starbucks did not sell beverages. Starbucks sold coffee and uh, coffee beans and uh, tea. And um, we brewed coffee, but we gave it away every day, all day, in little tiny cups, you know, a couple ounces at a time. Um, We had customers by 1975 who were wholesale customers that were coffee cards or restaurants that were starting to sell espresso in addition to regular drip coffee. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't sell brewed coffee. And um, it worked really well for us and kept our operations simple. Uh, the market today where, you know, everybody's buying uh, coffee beverages uh, wasn't really in existence then. It was a, a minor thing. Uh, so we just sold Wholesale to people who had carts and, and stayed away from it. A big shift came in the mid '80s. Mm-hmm. And some of the the beans you were selling initially were those beans roasted by Alfred Pete? Only for the first I don't know nine months. He'd helped us out. He wanted to open, but we didn't have a roasting plant yet. So he uh, he roasted coffee and uh, shipped it up to us while we were building our roasting plant. That was very helpful. I could imagine. And I want to talk briefly about the name as well. I know, I mean, the name Starbucks is famous worldwide. Everybody knows it, but it could have been Bowker, Baldwin, and Siegel. It could have been Starbo. It could have been Steamers. So why would it end up being Starbucks? Jacob, your degree of research is phenomenal. I'm quite impressed with you. Uh, the uh, So imagine your listeners, they're starting a company, you know, a little software company, phone apps, uh, online gaming and they got to name their their company and they got to name their products or their product lines we had to go through that too and so what we did what everybody does we made lists of names long lists of names um and then uh, you know <laughs> you have all the time in the world to do that right there's no rush you're working on developing the company well the magic moment comes when you have to file the incorporation papers <laughs> I, you know, we got a call from our attorney uh, who said, okay, guys, what's the name of the company? And, you know, uh, so th- th- at some point, you don't have free will anymore. You have to come up with a name. So at that point, we had a list that we had boiled down to, I don't know, four or five names. And one of the names on the list that was, as you said, Starbo. And Starbo was a name that Gordon had found, Gordon Bowker. Um, it was the name of a defunct mine on the Olympic Peninsula here in the state of Washington. And Starbo had a nice ring to it. So as we were one evening trying to get the name nailed down, um, somebody blurted out Starbucks. And we said, oh, that, that's easier to say. Let's try Starbucks. Uh, it didn't have a, an apostrophe, just plural, Starbucks. And 
that became the name. We sent that name off to our attorney, you know, and that became the name of the company. Oh my God, what a good choice. Um, the, um, the name is great. It's hard, uh, hard to misspell, uh, which became important once the internet came into existence because it, people you know, could Google us or email us you know, uh, pretty easily uh, because they really couldn't misspell Starbucks. Um, I mean, you'd have to work hard to do that. Um, so the name was a, you know, a group process. It turned out to be just fabulous. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about now opening the first store. Now, famously, the first store is located at 1912 Pike Place, but it was originally located at 2000 Western Avenue, correct? Yes, you're exactly correct. And I have a quote in down here from you that says Starbucks was started with sweat equity. And I know you built the store basically from scratch, as far as I'm aware, cutting costs by building shelves in your parents' basement. What are some other ways you um, started the company with sweat equity? <laughs> well, you know, sweat equity is a blessing and a curse. Um, many of your listeners do sweat equity. They write code, you know, they have their day job. And then on the nights and night and weekends, they write code for their own product. Uh, that's sweat equity. Why are they doing that? Well, they're doing it to get to the point where they can get funded so they can hire other people to do it. And uh, the founders of Starbucks, you know, each put in a very small amount of money, what we could. Um, so we had to, have, uh, if we wanted to get that store open, we had to do something. And we decided just intuitively that we had to build it ourselves. And I did build all of the shelves and the cabinets and um, the coffee bins. Um, in my parents' basement, it, that is a correct story. And it took a long time and it, it challenged me quite a bit. Um, but uh, then when we found our location, uh, right next to the Pike Place Public Market in Seattle at 2000 Western, we uh, had to, the space was in poor condition. So we had to, uh, remodel it. We did most of that remodeling ourselves with help from a lot of help from friends and family members. You know, I had to get the trash out, uh, you know, patch the, a couple of areas of wall space, uh, you know, paint the ceiling, the floors, the wall, you know, there was a lot of work to do. We did everything except um, wiring and plumbing. And it was a lot of work. It took months. It took months, but it didn't cost much. <laughs> Fair enough. And I'm curious about the positioning of Starbucks early on. From my understanding, the intent was to position it as a timeless company that had always been there. That was kind of the intent behind the positioning? Yes. Gordon was the person who thought consciously about that. And by the way, Gordon subsequently became a consultant to some pretty big companies uh, on that subject. Rainier Beer, Cummings Diesel, others. Um, Okay, two skis did a lot of work for them. Um, the um, yeah, positioning is an interesting factor. A lot of people who do software aren't so good at positioning. I've discovered um, positioning has to do with how everything about your business and how and the product and how people perceive it. Where did it come from? You know, uh, do you have a conscience? Uh, you know, just. Some of this stuff is just below the surface, subliminal. So Gordon was very interested in those hidden factors. 
So he loved the name that we chose, the Starbucks. He thought that had a kind of a timeless quality to it. And then working with um, uh, Terry Heckler, uh, Burns' par partner in his uh, marketing firm, um, they developed, it was uh, the Heckler people that uh, developed the logo. Now the logo was a prime example of um, the identity of the company matching the uh, goal of uh, the, uh, the positioning, which in our case was to appear to be timeless and, and knowledgeable. Um, that logo, which is a brown uh, cigar band type logo with a mermaid, uh, anatomically correct mermaid with two tails, um, uh, was just perfect for that time. Perfect. And it made us look you know, like we were an established company. And the, also the design of the interior of the store, it had a very uh, traditional look. The only clue that it was uh, kind of a hip company was the way the graphics were done in the store. Uh, there was a stripe running around like a, a band uh, up near the ceiling. And there were some other clues that, oh, wait a minute, this isn't a really an old company. <laughs> uh, it was fascinating to, to be a part of that and to learn from Gordon about how positioning is done. And you mentioned the two tails on the logo. What's the significance of the two tails? Sorry. Oh yeah. Well, the logo. Uh, someone, I think it was someone in the uh, firm, um, found uh, an image um, from the era of the Greek dominance of the Eastern Mediterranean, um, ancient Greece. There was this image of a siren. They believed in sirens, um, with two tails, and there's this lore that uh, we built up around it that a siren with two tails had far more attraction, more persuasiveness, more appeal than a siren with just one tail. So we we love that. By the way, in the new in the current logo of Starbucks, which is green and is a round circle, and is recognized all over the world, those two tails are still there if you look closely. Mm -hmm. And so with. With Gordon being focused on the positioning of the company was his things. From my understanding, your expertise was the day-to-day -day and the hiring and training of the employees, the people side. Is that correct? Yeah, building building the fixtures and trying to do a little PR and you know, I, you know, I was I was in the locus of the typical first-time entrepreneur trying to do everything. My partners had great talents in a few areas. Thank God they were there. Um, the uh, well, yeah, one of the problems with startups and all of the first time startup people that I work with, no matter what field they're in, it's just a question of how are you going to cover the areas that you don't know, because those areas are the ones that are going to bite you on the rear. Um, and um, because there were three of us and our skills were complementary, um, we, we had a, a lot of information and ability among us. Um, and then the first few hires that we made were just fabulous people who knew much more than we did and had capabilities that we didn't have. So the team enlarged pretty quickly to include um, oh, five of us, I would say. Mm -hmm. And one of the big things you focused on early on was educating the market, right? Because like you said, Star, there was no coffee like this in Seattle at that time. Yeah, and our coffee cost twice as much as supermarket coffee, three times in some cases. Um, you know, you could, you know, you can imagine, uh, 
Well, if you're buying a phone today and they tell you it's going to be $1,500, you know, you, you get a little uh, jaundiced about that. You think, 1500 bucks? what can this phone that do that my phone can't do? Well, that's the attitude that people um, had about our coffee. They'd come in drawn by, you know, our the PR that we did or by the aroma that was dr drifting out of the store. Um, and, um, you know, everything was, hung, was just fine uh, until they saw the price, which it just, well, the prices were by today's standards ludicrously low. But by comparison to other coffee at that time, they were very high. So we used um, education. Uh, I could do it instinctively and because I was trained as a teacher uh, and because I love business. Um, and I was able to train all of our retail employees how to do this. And we quickly hit upon brewing our coffee and serving it in little sample cups. So if your listeners will bear with me for a minute, visualize yourself walking into the store you've never heard about. You're in a, a Seattle's Pike Place market and across the street from the market, there's this coffee store. Oh, let's go over there and see what they're about. Uh, so you walk in and the first thing that hits you is the aroma. Wow. Uh, and fabulous coffee. And there are a few other people in there and, and uh, they're talking to the clerks. And somebody from behind the counter says to you, as you're standing there dumbfounded, uh, hi, would you like to have a sample while you're waiting? <laughs> and of course you say, sure. So, you know, we give them a sample of a terrific coffee from Kenya or, you know, some fantastic coffee from Costa Rica. And um, so now they're standing, you know, in the, first part of the store, holding a two ounce cup of uh, really good coffee. Well, there's a wonderful thing that we discovered about that little cup. Once you had that cup in your hand, you did not leave. It was like an anchor. And it worked really well for us. We didn't understand that at first, but it became real clear to us. So you've already been greeted and you know, you're sampling coffee and you know that there's something really different about this coffee because you just tasted it. So by the time it's your turn, you, you know, you come up to the counter and we, you know, whoever waited on you, didn't, you know, uh, uh, any of our employees would start asking you questions about you and your coffee habit, you know, building a relationship. Their mission was that this person was going to become a lifetime customer of Starbucks. Going to buy their, all their coffee beans from us forever. That's what we wanted. So. Uh, you know, take a scoop and dig it into one of the bins of coffee and stick it under your nose. You know, that's an experience because it's so aromatic and interesting to look at. And, you know, asking you questions about you and your coffee and your coffee maker. And, and finally, you know, we were all trained by me to, to go for the clothes, to get them to buy a half pound of coffee or a pound. Um, and a lot of people left with a, you know, a half pound of coffee. And the last thing you would say to them is, you know, when you come back next time, let us know what you think about that one, and then we'll try another one, <laughs> which is, of course, begging the next sale. And uh, it worked really great. We, we introduced a lot of people, hundreds and hundreds of people, to, to good coffee that way. We didn't do it from, you know, like Moses with the tablets. We just did it out of a love for coffee and a, and a love of educating people to the point where they would see the difference and prefer it.
And another one of those ways to, like, I've heard you describe that your goal is to incorporate them into the stores. They felt like they were a part of something by coming into Starbucks. And you mentioned how when they, when they would leave, you'd say, next time we'll try a different blend. But what you would do in case they really love that blend is every single person that would get a different blend of beans, you would write that down. So it would be in the store for next time they came in, right? You know, uh, today, I think there's still a lot of coffee bars that keep the card files, uh, punch, you know, where you, the punch card that you keep with your favorite coffee bar in some places is actually in the store in a little card file. This is pre-COVID. It was like that. So um, let's see, uh, a guy we all knew, uh, Nick, would come in and he'd want his special blend, which he'd even given a name. So we'd turn around and go into the little card file and find his name and take it out and make his blend, which was, a, as I recall, a three-part blend. Do you think that guy's going to go shop anywhere else? No, no he's not. You know, today, because of the capabilities of, of uh, software and phone apps, people are bonded to their favorite vendors, you know, wholesale, retail, whatever, um, by the fact that this is done electronically now. Um, you know, not just Amazon, but many companies uh, are, are pinging you all the time with helpful. I, I got my car tuned up recently. First, I got pinged asking me if I love the service. Then I got pinged by the salesman saying, did I want to trade that car in? Uh, I mean, that's, that's uh, yeah, that's re- the, the, the first one is relationship building, making sure that I'm okay, that I don't have a hidden problem, and also bond, trying to bond me to the company. And the other is trying to make another sale. I, I kind of admire that. Um, it's, all, it's the same thing that we did in person is now done electronically and it's important mm-hmm. and i'm curious if there were any anxious times early on in the business i have a couple written down here like i've heard you say that you almost almost ran ran yourselves out of business in the second year because you opened too quickly right that's correct why why was opening too quickly and negative like why did that almost drive you out of business you really want to hear the bad stuff i think it's an important <laughs> part an important part for people to hear yeah i think it is too uh in the second year well, after about nine months, we opened our roasting plant and a new store, a second store, which was a home run, um, at the same time. And you think, wow, that's really good. That's an ambitious company. They're growing. Yeah, but we didn't have the capital base to do that. We kept good records and we, you know, we, we tried to keep track of what our cash position was and what it was going to be in 30 days and 60 days. But we got, just like some of your listeners, we got consumed by the moment. Um, you know, the, our roaster, we bought a used roaster in Germany, shipped over. You think when that roaster arrived, we weren't going to set it up in our new roasting plant and use it? Hell no, we were going to do that. Um, and did we have the money to do that? No, that didn't stop us. You know, it's passion. You know, the, the, the old Nike ad, go for it. Well, go for it can drive you right out of business. And it almost did that to us. Um, we just didn't have the capital. Our, we had two stores open. They were both profitable. That wasn't the issue. The issue was we didn't have enough capital to continue to invest in the company. So we did open the roasting plant. And I remember being there in the first few months with the phone ringing. And guess who was calling? Our creditors. You know, <laughs> boy, is that not fun. And finally, our bank dropped us. But they, we'd gotten a very small loan. Banks didn't then make loans to new companies. And frankly, they mostly still don't. Um, 
but we had gotten a, you know, like a $5,000 loan or something like that. And the damn bank called the loan. Um, well, okay, the creditors are calling. We're having trouble making payroll. The next thing is you have trouble making uh, your tax payments on the payroll, which really puts you in jeopardy in the United States because then um, the IRS can come and close you down. Um, so right at this time, we said, <laughs> a, little, a little late, I guess we need to raise some money. I mean, this was not something I'm particularly proud of. Um, and so we did a forecast, uh, contacted uh, some uh, three or four guys we knew who had, you know, who were around, well, like us, around 30 years old, but they had made a little money. And uh, one of them, by the way, who was still a friend, uh, had made his money crab fishing in Alaska. He had gotten a big payday. And um, so they, we sold them 20% of the company. You know, arrived at a valuation, sold them 20%, used their money to pay off all our bills, and we had some left over. And that was the last time we took money from investors because profits from our stores, we got up to six stores and 300 wholesale customers, profit and debt were able to fund everything we wanted to do in Seattle through about 1982. Uh, we never, that was the only time that the founders of Starbucks dealt with investors. That was our friend, and it was okay because we were so profitable that we could pay the, make the payments on the debt. And there were some tough times in the mid-70s as well, correct? The the Surgeon General came out and said coffee was risky stuff. And I have another story here. I don't know if this is true or not, but in 1975, was there a a, a devastating freeze that, or a, an extraordinary freeze that devastated Brazilian crops that resulted to you guys having to... Uh, where did I write it down here? Having to roast barley for another company as a way to substitute some income? Hmm. I want to say to your listeners again, Jacob does his homework. Um, the, um, yes, both of those things actually, I don't remember the barley part, but it probably did happen. Um, uh, let's, let, let's talk about, remember your question, please, because I might forget it. Let's talk about the, the barley idea. One of the things that Starbucks, which was a different kind of crisis, not a financial crisis, went through in the mid-70s was we had people, we had a nice roasting plant and uh, our, you know, roasting guy, uh, Jim Reynolds, was just fabulous. He already had a good reputation after just a year with us. Um, he went on to a long career in coffee. Um, people came to us and said, you know, my brother-in-law just sent me a uh, 500 pounds of really great coffee from Colombia. Could you roast it for me? I'm going to try and sell it. Or, you know, peanuts or barley or, you know, whatever. And we did, th we did that once or twice. And then we had a sort of a come to Jesus session where we agreed that we're not going to do that anymore. That's called contract roasting. And we, we said, nope, we're not doing that anymore because we can't have two qualities of product flowing through our plant. We can't ask, Jim Reynolds, for instance, was doing a fabulous, careful job of roasting really great coffee. We can't ask him to turn around and at the end of the day, roast 500 pounds of coffee for some guy whose brother, you know, sent him some beans from Colombia. It just, uh, you can't do that. It, it, it's, it's a, it would be schizophrenic in, in a week. So we decided, okay, no more contract roasting. And I think that that kind of distraction happens every day in tech companies and, you know, manufacturing businesses where you're confronted with a way to make money
that takes you away from your core purpose, saps your energy of getting to the real goal. And, you know, we almost succumbed to that. There was another part to your question, Jacob, which I don't remember. It was the United States Surgeon General saying coffee. Oh, yeah. Well, there was also a coffee freeze. Uh, There are two things that happened in the 70s. There was a big major freeze in Brazil that affected the output of Brazilian coffee. Now, we weren't roasting Brazilian coffee, but, you know, that's sort of the dog that uh, wagged the tail. Um, The um, Brazil is a big producer of coffee. So when the freeze happened, prices went up and we thought that was going to be a big deal problem for us. Then the Surgeon General at that time came out and said, coffee might be bad for you, man. and he, the media just loved that idea. They, they ran with that for quite a while. A nice sensational story. Um, and, you know, looking back, there are problems somewhere in the world with the coffee crop almost every year, but people still love coffee. Uh, you know, it, yes, it was a momentary blip. We thought it was going to be a bigger impact than it was. But so despite all of these, these anxious or somewhat frightening times, Starbucks found extreme success in the local Seattle market. So I'm curious as to why you think Seattle, Starbucks was able to dominate in Seattle for the first 10 years. Oh, there are lots of theories about that. I don't know which one's the most prominent, actually, or more accurate. Um, Seattle at that time was had a big Scandinavian influence. Uh, people from Norway and Sweden and Denmark living here. I mean, this is like the third generation. Um, they, you know, they're famous coffee lovers but not necessarily good coffee at that time. Um, the weather's kind of, uh, was a factor then, you know, there was snow in the winter and drizzle, you know, from October to April. Um, summers weren't as hot then as they are now. Um, and so the weather and the, you know, might've been an influence too. And also it's the West coast. And, you know, we all know that it's new ideas are more embraced in you know, Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles than they are, say, in uh, you know Omaha and Bogalusa, Alabama. Um, the so those might be some of the reasons why we were successful here. We aren't the only company that's been successful here either. So during your last your last three years or so at Starbucks, you were starting a bunch of new divisions within the company. I have a couple of them written down here: Pike Place Teas, Blue Anchor, and Blue Anchor, I believe, was a direct to grocery store brand. Correct. That's correct. That's a good story. Um, the I started those two divisions, and there were some others. Um, I was like the in-house entrepreneur. Um, yeah, Blue Anchors. Let's t- let's focus on that. Be helpful to your listeners. Uh, we weren't selling in supermarkets. Uh, good coffee wasn't in Safeway and other big chains here. And so we approached the local chains after we had established ourselves, you know, we had four or five stores now, people were talking about us and we didn't have to, you know, we could invite the uh, purchasing agents for the supermarkets to come to the store or to our roasting plant to see what's going on. Um, people loved to come to the roasting plant. Um, so we eventually got them to say, yeah, you can do it. And we put in these Kia Island kiosks in uh, Safeway and another local chain. Um, and we ran into something right away that we didn't anticipate. It was fascinating. And your uh, listeners who have uh, plans to sell B2B uh, will find this interesting because it's the same thing happens uh, in the tech world. Um, so we got into the supermarkets, these beautiful ILNs, and the coffee's selling, Blue Anchor brand roasted by Starbucks. 
very good coffee. Um, and we start getting pressure from the purchasing agents, they call them buyers, uh, for these grocery chains saying, you got to lower your price. And we're saying, well, <laughs> actually, we pre-lowered our price to you, my friend. Um, we are selling to you as cheap as we can, uh, for as little money as we can. And they said, I don't, I don't care what you do, but you got to make it less expensive. That's what supermarkets are about, pal. And um, we, said, we explained to them politely that, no, no, we couldn't do that because we can't control the price of um, the fine coffees that were in those bags. And so, so gradually, we got at loggerheads with the buyers, with the supermarket buyers, customers like this. Um, and we, did, we made a, a decision together we're going to kill this brand. So what we did is we found another company that wanted to get into the supermarket business. They were based in um, Vancouver, British Columbia. They were already in supermarkets in uh, Western Canada, and they wanted to come into uh, Washington State. So they bought our company, killed our brand, and took our space, and we couldn't have been happier. Uh, and by the way, although Starbucks coffee is sold in supermarkets all over the country now, there was a 15-year period where it wasn't sold in after, after Blue Anchor. It just supermarket buyers just didn't understand the concept of quality at that time. And you mentioned how you were kind of the, the entrepreneur within Starbucks. And how important do you think it is to enable entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism within your company today? Like, Is that what leads to innovation or does that take away from the main goal you're focusing on as a company? Well, that's something I talk a lot about uh, when I'm asked to speak to, um, uh, especially to corporate groups, uh, entrepreneurship, they call it, entrepreneurship. Uh, corporate entrepreneurship is a fascinating subject because, of course, the corporations, on the one hand, want people to be entrepreneurial. On the other hand, they want them to do their jobs and follow orders. <laughs> it's, there's, there's, a, there's a real inherent conflict there. Uh, one of the companies that, by the way, uh, has solved this problem pretty successfully happens to be Amazon. There are a lot of people on Amazon who think they're entrepreneurs because the company kind of encourages them. But not kind of. They have whole, whole systems for developing new ideas. Um, so, yeah, I was the in-house entrepreneur. I started several different little divisions, some of which worked, some of which didn't. Um, in retrospect, not at the time. In retrospect, I can see that my fascination was, uh, with starting new parts of Starbucks coffee in the 1970s was A, a distraction for the company, and B, really a manifestation of my interest in being a serial entrepreneur. <laughs> so uh, by 1980, my partners recognized that too. And they, we had a meeting and they said, you know, Zev, some of these things you're doing work, some of them don't. Um, they're certainly interesting, but they are not helping us deepen our penetration in our market here. And our core business, roasting coffee and selling at retail and wholesale, you know, we're making quite a bit of profit doing that. Maybe we should do more of that and less entrepreneurship. So what happened was I said, oh, that's not going to work for me personally. I can see that I agree with you as a stockholder that it works for the company. So here's what I'd suggest. You buy me out and I'll keep opening companies on my own. And they, we worked it out. Uh, 
I, I sold my stock to the company and the first thing I did was start another company. <laughs> and so to, so was that a difficult realization for you to come to? Like, how do you deploy the self-awareness to know that about yourself and then to, to admit that to yourself and actually make the decision to leave the company you'd spent 10 years building? It's a lot easier to talk about it now, I can tell you, Jacob. Um, you know, many years have gone by since then. Gordon and Jerry and I are still friends. Um, and uh, at the time, it was, you know, it was hard. It was hard realizing that I couldn't keep doing what I wanted to do the way I was doing it inside of the company. And But I'm glad because I did get to start several companies after that. And um, uh, Starbucks was successful. So can't argue with it. So does it does the success of Starbucks today, does that make leaving the company easier or harder? Is it easier to know that when you left, the company was still in good hands and was able to continue growing? Or does it make it harder that once you left, it still continued to grow without you? I would say I'm pretty close to ecstatic about what's happened to Starbucks. Um, it is a really successful, well-run company. And um I think it'll it's certainly going to survive the present problem with the pandemic. Um, but it is really a, a tremendous source of pride, you know, to be associated uh, with a company that does that. 30,000 stores in 78 countries. Who wouldn't love to have been part of that? Uh, the um, Now, I am very transparent that I am not the person who made Starbucks into a household name all over the world. And I, I, when I speak overseas, I, it's pr practically the first thing I say to the audience, just so they don't mistake me. Uh, I'm a small business guy. Um, the reason the company is such an international powerhouse is Howard Schultz, who came to work at Starbucks in about 1982-83 as a successful sales and marketing executive. and. He did great work from the beginning um, and, you know, had his great epiphany that many people have read about where he, Starbucks sent him to Milan, Italy, to a trade show to go look at our vendors who were selling us, uh, you know, coffee makers and tableware. Um, and he came back saying, hey, did you guys know that everybody drinks coffee over there, but they don't, but they, they buy it at espresso bars? And we said, yeah, yeah, we know that. <laughs> it was his first trip to Europe. And uh, he said, yeah, but if you stop to think that maybe we should be selling brewed coffee because it adds another level of profit and, uh, you know, compared to selling beans. And we said, yeah, but we've got our wholesale customers to protect. And he said, I don't think so. <laughs> he said, I, I, I think we should be experimenting with this. And he kept nudging and nudging. And uh, finally, Starbucks did a joint venture with Howard Schultz, in which a chain opened in Seattle with three locations. It was called Il Giornale. And Il Giornale was pretty successful. Howard ran it. Starbucks roasted the coffee. And after less than two years, uh, it, it, the situation got confused. I mean, it was kind of awkward. And Howard suggested that he be allowed to purchase Starbucks. It just so happened I had been bought out you know, with my agreement. and. Gordon and Jerry were kind of wanting to sell. They'd been in the business for 14, 15 years, and they were interested in selling. So Howard's timing, Howard Schultz's timing was very, very good when he started getting interested in buying the company. So 
a deal was worked out. Uh, Howard Schultz and a group of investors bought the company. Howard became CEO. The logo changed from brown to green, and the thrust changed from beans to beverages, and the rest is history. And I'm curious, bit of a two, maybe three-pronged question based off of that. When when did you find out that Howard was purchasing the company, and what did you think of it initially, and why do you think he's been able to grow it to the size it it is today? Um, well, Howard uh, uh, is out of the company now. He retired. After some of your listeners know that he made a uh, short-lived uh, run at becoming president of the United States. Um, he wanted to be the Democratic candidate, but he had to stop doing that early on. Uh, so he, that, that part of it, that's not going to happen. Um, how did I feel? Well, I, I had met Howard when he first came to Seattle. Uh, I liked him a lot. thought he was really capable. He's, you know, a young married guy. Um, and um, I was, I was really, you know, I was off doing my own thing. I wasn't really aware of the, of the negotiation to, for Howard to purchase the company at all until it happened. Then I was, I remember being quite amazed that that had taken place. Like, you know, I called my partners and they explained to me what had happened um, and that everybody was happy about it. I got a lot happier when I saw what he was doing with the company. Oh my God. Very soon it became really clear that uh, Howard Schultz was a great businessman. Um, the real moment for me when I knew it was just going to be gangbusters. <laughs> Uh, came, oh, it must have been before, oh, maybe 1988, 89. Starbucks expanded uh, from Seattle to two places pretty early on, uh, Chicago and Vancouver, B.C. And, and uh, Vancouver is in Canada. Canada is a different country than the United States, so I thought that was pretty bold. Um, and the store there on Robeson Street was really successful. So I went up to see it, and, God, it was just Beautiful store, big coffee bar. Um, then a year later, a friend told me that Starbucks had opened a store caddy corner diagonally across the intersection from its store in Vancouver. I said, no, you can't do that. I got in my car and went up there. And it was true. There was another big, beautiful Starbucks coffee bar diagonally across Robeson Street from uh, the, the first Starbucks up there. And it was also a success. And at that point, I thought, oh, my God, they figured out some things that I, I just didn't know about. Um, and, you know, that was just the only thing like it in the world at that time. I mean, it was just phenomenal. So I knew that the, the company must be run by fabulous managers and that they had figured out some things about customer behavior that I didn't know about. Are there still any things that Starbucks does today that was established during your time there? Because obviously it's gone on to be this huge, massive thing, but it needed a solid foundation, which you built. So are there things that they still do today that you did back in the seventies? Oh yeah. And I love them. So let's see. Um, oh, uh, my wife and I were in uh, Hyderabad, India, which is a tech capital and also an old city. It's in, right in the middle of the south of India. Um, I was there to give a talk, and we were wandering around one day and went into a Starbucks. Well, I wasn't wandering around. I went to find that Starbucks. Um, and we go in, and it looks like a Starbucks. Starbucks stores all over the world have a similarity of appearance. And the, you know, I go, through, I look, you know, I get in line and 
looking at the menu and they're just a couple things that have an Indian accent to them, you know, but everything else is pretty familiar to me. Um, and I do what I always do in coffee bars of all kinds. I ask a couple of oblique questions, open-ended questions. What I wanted, what I'm doing is trying to find out if the person behind the counter has been trained, if they know anything about coffee. So I asked this uh, young man behind the counter uh, some question, you know, a typical question for me is, would be, uh, which coffee are you using to make espresso? And then when they answer that, uh, then I would say, well, um, is that a blend? And then that leads to, you know, them having the opportunity to show me what they know. Well, in most coffee bars, when you ask those kinds of questions, you get a big download. Um, and uh, they just love talking to you about sharing their knowledge. Well, that whole thing about sharing your knowledge of coffee is very pleasant for me because in a Starbucks store, I know that that's what we started doing in 1971 when we opened in March. And it's still going on. They train their employees and the employees educate their the customers. Uh, that's one thing. Second thing is Starbucks coffee today, I don't know how they do it at that scale, 30,000 stores. It's pretty darn good. Um, and you know, and they also dabble in uh, little uh, little estates. If you want to spend a little more money, or sometimes a lot more money, you can have coffee from a, one single estate. You know, in Colombia, um, it's amazing and uh, very great, great care in brewing. I, I love that too. So these are things that have were from the beginning, absolutely from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I've heard you describe drinking coffee and going to coffee shops as an experience is the best coffee experience you ever had still in Johannesburg. <laughs> oh gosh, there's so many best experiences. Uh, uh, you know, for me, it's the whole thing. It's, uh, you know, you approach the coffee bar, you experience the coffee bar, the coffee might be good, might be bad. The people in it are always interesting. The uh, people behind the counter also interesting. And sometimes there are some, little extras like it turns out they're roasting right in the store right in the coffee bar that that, that always appeals to me yeah I, I to me it's the whole experience uh, my wife just gets so angry with me sometimes she said why did you go in there you knew the coffee was going to be bad I said yeah but the experience was good <laughs> she's she's mostly interested and in, focused on the quality of the coffee well yeah i had an experience um i would say in cape town uh, in, also in South Africa, that was pretty remarkable. Um, it was a big coffee bar and also a restaurant. And um, the people that worked there were you know, practically in costume. It was a real experience to be there. They're just so stylish. And, and this particular coffee bar roasted. They had a big roaster in the back. And they, when I said, oh, you roast here? Could I see the roaster? You know, And uh, they, they took me back there. That was pretty fun. But there are lots of experiences all over the world. I would encourage anybody who travels when we all get to travel again to be sure and, you know, use your uh, cell phone. Just put in uh, third wave coffee into your Google Maps or Google uh, research. And um, you'll come up with a map of little coffee bars that are passionate and you, you go find them. And I've done this in so many places, uh, Kuwait City, Bogota, Santiago de Chile. I mean, it's just a thrill.
And you got recognized in Kuwait, right? <laughs> you know, being recognized um, in Kuwait, there was a, an experience in a really cool coffee bar. Well, I'm going to take just a few more minutes and, and, and ex explain to your listeners. Um, in the Gulf region, Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates, and also uh, not so much in Saudi Arabia, but in Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates, but particularly in Kuwait, coffee bars are a big deal. In Islamic, in Arab culture, if uh, Islamic people don't drink uh, alcohol, uh, I mean, not uh, 100%, but uh, it, it, alcohol is not encouraged. So, you know, if you're 27 years old and you want to socialize, you go to a coffee bar because you don't go out for a beer. So there are lots and lots of coffee bars, lots of them. And they're quite stylish and they're busiest starting at five o'clock in the evening. And they get really busy like at 10 o'clock at night. Lots of hip, cool uh, Kuwaitis in there having a wee of a time. During the day, they're not very busy at all, by the way. Um, so I, was, uh, I got a Kuwaiti guy that I had met to take me and uh, my wife, who was with me that day, um, on a quick tour of coffee bars. We went to 20 coffee bars in two hours. Um, it was possible because they were in clusters. Um, and in one of the coffee bars, I was, I, by the way, I was in Kuwait to give a talk. And in one of the coffee bars, you know, the, I gave my order to the barista, but down the counter, in this empty coffee bar, really beautiful coffee bar, there's another guy, and I could tell he's the owner. You know, owners always give themselves away. So I'm waiting. So I placed my order, and then my wife and I moved down the counter to, to the place where they give you your purchase. And the guy uh, at the other end of the counter is eyeing me. I, he's eyeing me. And so he comes over and he says, the first thing he says to me, I mean, Kuwait, remember, you know, 8,000 miles from home, he says, are you Zev Siegel? I just about fell out of my shoes. Uh, how the hell did this guy know my name? And it, but it turned out that he knew the guy who had hired me to come and give a talk. And so it was, it was perfectly reasonable. What usually happens is even more fun. I'm in a coffee bar and I like to engage in conversation with the, the people behind the counter, the baristas. And you know, so we, we talk about coffee. But after a while, if I ask too many questions, they get suspicious. <laughs> they, they think I'm a competitor, but I can't be because I clearly am an American. They can tell right away. And uh, so they just, you know, you can, you can just see it in their eyes. They're just starting to wonder who the hell is this guy? And so sometimes they'll say, uh, you seem to know quite a bit about coffee, don't you? And this happened to me in a really great third wave coffee bar in Singapore. And it was really fun. This young woman kind of scrunched up her face and said, you seem to know a little bit about coffee. And so at that point, people in the coffee industry, like me, have a choice. You can fess up or not. And with her, I didn't tell her that I had a long career in coffee and I was a co-founder of Starbucks. I just didn't do that. I thought it would just skew the whole thing. But sometimes I do. It just depends on the situation. And I'm curious about one specific situation where you did tell someone, and that was, I believe it was at the original location. You told someone that you were the founder. Jacob, you're going to bring me to tears. Uh, this, that was one of the great moments that I wish everyone who's listening to this podcast, I, w I wish every one of you would have a similar experience. So I, 
one morning, uh, I went to the original location of Starbucks, which is now a boom and coffee bar that is an international destination uh, pre-COVID. Um, people go to it because they're big fans of Starbucks, mostly from Asia, uh, Korea, China, and Japan, where Starbucks has thousands of stores. Um, so there's a, usually a line outside all day, and you know it's it's not a place that anybody who lives here would go to because there are too many people there. But I went down there like at 7.15 in the morning, one summer morning, and uh, last year actually, and there was nobody in line. Huh, lucky me. So I went in and uh, ordered my drink. There were, you know, there's some other people there. And the woman behind the counter, who was not the barista, they, they separated the order taking from the making of the coffee. Um, was, you know, I was talking to her about the store and the history of the store. And she said, you seem to know a lot about this. Um, uh, can you tell me why? And I said, I'm one of the co-founders. I'm Zev Siegel. Now, why did I say that to her? Well, I said it to her because she was a really nice person uh, and uh, it just seemed appropriate to me. You know, I, 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 this wasn't the time to try and appear to be somebody else. So, I, I, you know, I, I said, you're right. And she, um, this is a woman who, she was about 40 years old. And she said, I've been working for Starbucks for 15 years. And I want to thank you so much for helping to start this company because it has been a wonderful experience to be part of it. Now, I ask your listeners, how would you like someone to say that to you? And the answer is, you'd like it a lot. Uh, it really, uh, it used to be that whenever I would tell anybody that story, I would, I would I'd start to cry. How often do you reflect on everything, on the moments like that, on founding the company, where it is today? The first location, the business you started is now a tourist destination. How often do you reflect on everything? Oh, a lot. Um, I spend uh, time each day working with uh, startups. You know, now it's all done uh, with Zoom meetings, and they're all over the place, all over the United States, all over the world. Um, I love helping them. And would I get to do that if the first company that I was part of hadn't become a household word? I don't think so. I just don't think I would have the opportunity to help so many people if Starbucks hadn't become uh, a global success. So um, I reflect on it every day. You know, I'll be talking to, well, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be talking to a guy in Manila in the Philippines who found me online and that I, that I, that I might help him. And I know that that guy wouldn't be interested in me without Starbucks. I can accept that because I really enjoy being able to give back the way Alfred Pete helped me when I was, you know, in my mid-20s. Um, I really enjoyed that. And, you know, life is tough enough without having a little help once in a while. Um, so, yeah, I do reflect on it all the time. And I know that without the success of Starbucks, my life today would be quite different, even though I'm not part of Starbucks. Mm -hmm. And then how do you look back on the businesses that you started outside of Starbucks? I know one's Quartermain Coffee Roasters, SocialBees.com, another one I have written down. But how do you look back on those five businesses? Well, Quartermain um, Coffee Roasters survived, so I'm pretty happy about that one. Uh, Social Bees was an early local, well, it was local for long, um, business that I started because I could see in the early days of the internet that social, uh, that um, search engine optimization, SEO, was going to be a big deal. And that I knew from consulting with small companies that they weren't doing a good job of it. 
They were just treating as something in the early days, search engine optimization was treated as something that uh, you don't have to do it. Um, you just have to get a website up. Um, <laughs> not true. Uh, the, um, so we started this company that consulted with small businesses. Um, and uh, I was mostly like the, you know, the idea guy. And I found somebody who would do the company and another guy and I funded it. Um, it's very interesting because uh, social bees couldn't survive on small businesses. And the young guy who was running the company pivoted it to work with big organizations who also needed help with search engine optimization. And uh, the, the, two found, the two funders, uh, just uh, after 18 months, two years, we sold the company to the guy who was running it. Um, so there was an example of a startup um, that uh, survived for, uh, I don't it's not, not around today. I don't know what finally happened to it. But um, it started, but it was in the wrong place as far as choosing the wrong customer base, small businesses, and had to pivot to bigger organizations. And on the, the true fan team call, when, we, when you were nice enough to join the whole team and ask, talk to everyone, I asked you what your proudest moment was outside of Starbucks. And you said about everything, it's talking to those entrepreneurs, like you said, and coaching them. And from my understanding, you do it for majority, if not all of them, it's pro bono. And I'm curious as to why you do it pro bono. Um, many of the people that I work with, I don't charge. And the reason I don't do it is because I want to work with them. And startups cannot afford consultants. I know that. I'm a startup guy. And, uh, you know, for eight years, I uh, had an office near the Seattle airport where uh, I was funded by the Small Business Development Center, which is a federal program in the United States. Uh, I saw a lot of clients, and I know that small business people aren't, uh, aren't going to pay for their services at the Small Business Development Center. They didn't have to pay. So, yeah, I worked with 500 people in eight years. That's incredible. Um, if I had charged a, even a small amount, I would have worked with five people instead of 500. So, number one reason that a lot of my consulting as pro bono is um, that I really want to be able to give the assistance. Um, the, but I don't work with people for long if they aren't making progress. I have really, really nice, polite ways of getting them to go elsewhere. Um, I, I just uh, can't work with uh, people who are making bad decisions. Um, you know, what's a bad decision? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's true, Zev. I did hire my college roommate to do the, the to help me with the programming. Yeah. And you're right. He is a drunk. Um, but I love him and we understand each other. I can't work with a guy like that. I mean, that, it, he's making bad decisions. Um, there are many other things that will turn me off. Doesn't mean that, the, that their company's not going to succeed. Just means that I don't want to get involved. But I, I love the people that I do work with. <laughs> They're amazing. Well, usually a short-term relationship, you know, after a few months, usually. Certainly within a year, they're, they've moved on. The company's up and running. Um, you know, they, they're beyond the startup stage, which is where I like to operate. And you mentioned how a lot of, a lot of these businesses, they wouldn't have contacted you without knowing that you were the co-founder of Starbucks. So I'm curious. Where do you think you'd be today if you and Gordon had never taken that cross-country road trip, if the three of you had never started spitballing ideas, if you'd never started Starbucks, where would you be today? Boy, do I think about that sometimes, Jacob. That's a really great question and also very well phrased. 
um, I would say that I would probably be in a business of some kind because I had that itch and the influences from my uncle and family friends uh, itch to be a business person. But Lord knows what it would be. I might be like uh, many people who want to be in business but find that they are more successful having a job uh, with a nice income and uh, benefits. Um, nothing wrong with that if you're happy in your job. Um, I, I'm just not sure. I, but I suspect I would be in business. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have continued as a teacher. Zev, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on this podcast. I truly appreciate you all the time you have given me. I want to give you the floor. If there's anywhere people can find you, any way that you'd like them to contact you in any way, if they have questions or anything, I want to give you the floor to let people know where they can find oh, you. Uh, Jacob, the best way for people to find me is to spell my name right in Google. My name is E-E-V as in Victor, S-I-E-G-L. And if you put my name into Google, it'll be easy to find me. I have a website. I show up in, on LinkedIn. Um, there's lots of ways to get to me. Amazing. I want to thank you once again for taking time to be in this podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening. Whether you've listened the entire way through, you only listen to bits and pieces. I really appreciate you taking the time to check this out. Everyone do me a big favor. Go and Google Zeb. I'm promising you, you will not regret it. And I want to thank everyone once again for listening. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Thank you once again for listening, everybody. We'll talk soon. 